You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. I think at this moment, you have a lot of different judges and a lot of different um, professionals that would explain to you what they saw in a very different way with a very different idea of scoring. And until we have a real basis of this is what that horse started out with a capability of, you know, when Simone Biles goes to a vault, we know exactly what her, what the highest max score she can produce. Right, right. And until we get some sort of scoring that follows that pattern, you know, this horse only jumps this well, it's only capable of this score, and it's swapped and rubbed, rubbed a jump, so it's this many points off. It's not, it wouldn't be that complicated, I don't think. And until we get people that are, that agree to do that and to just overhaul the system, I, I think that it's going to continue. You're going to see the numbers in the hunters getting less and less and the numbers in the jumpers growing. Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Julia Boutenhouse, and this week's episode is with top hunter, jumper, and equitation trainer, Barry Porter. Hailing from Corpus Christi, Texas, Barry grew up with an eclectic horse background, as he likes to call it. As a child, he caught the horse bug after a preschool pony ride and never looked back. Though his family had no interest in horses, his passion drove him to find any opportunity to be around horses. His godfather, though, owned a ranch and brought Barry and his parents to a local auction where they bought his first horse, Jake, for just a few hundred dollars. Throughout his youth, Barry participated in 4-H and Future Farmers of America. And as a junior rider, he was a working student at a combined training dressage farm. Then, in college, he went professional as a Western rider and showed Western pleasure horses. While showing in the quarter horse world, Barry preferred the hunter under saddle classes. And when he moved back home after college, he connected with his current business partner, Sean Brennan, who exposed him further to the competitive hunter-jumper world. In 2008, Barry and Sean built Brookside Pine Farms from scratch in Conroe, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston. Since then, Barry's accomplishments have made him a top trainer in the sport. 2019 was a particularly standout season for him when Vivian Yowen and Kalu won the World Champion Hunter-Rider Adult Amateur Hunter Challenge at the Washington International Horse Show, and Eleanor Rudnicki and C.F. Cosmic won the Taylor Harris Insurance National Children's Medal Finals at the Capital Challenge Horse Show. And just last week, Sophia Cady won the Yousef Junior Jumper National Championship aboard Delane at the Pennsylvania National Horse Show. During our conversation, Barry speaks candidly about the current state of the hunter showing industry, as well as diversity and inclusion in the sport. Also, learn more about how Barry trains his students to be the best riders they can be, including his favorite exercises and his training philosophy. Before we dive into the podcast with Barry, I'd like to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, Purina, and share their message. This podcast is sponsored by Purina Animal Nutrition, with three research-backed ration balancers to fill nutritional gaps in your horse's diet. 
Enrich Plus delivers a concentrated source of protein, vitamins, and minerals without unnecessary calories. Enrich Plus Senior features active age, prebiotic technology, and Outlast supplement for aging easy keepers. Omega Match is rich in omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin E, which is great for horses without access to green grass. Find a ration balancer for your horse at purinamills.com forward slash ration balancers or visit your local feed store. Now enjoy the episode with Barry. This morning I have Barry Porter. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. Of course. So I want to start off with some basic questions about your background. And my first one is, how did you get interested in riding and the sport to begin with? Um, You know, to be honest, I was a little bit of a hyperactive kid. Um, And in my family, it's a very big family on both sides, my mother and my father's um, side. And there weren't really a lot of animal lovers or a lot of access to animals in either side of the family. But thankfully, I had a great doctor (laughs) who was like, you know what? Maybe the kid seems to love horses. Maybe if you let him be involved with horses, maybe that will kind of quiet down some of the hyperactivity. Um, And I think it worked for us. I think it was good. What a great doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Really fighting for you. How did you know that you loved horses? Had you gone to like a farm or like a petting zoo or a barn to see the horses that you just fell in love with them? Well, my mother tells the story that they brought horses like, um, you know, like just those little walk around kind of petting zoo type horses to my preschool when right. I was, we lived in Corpus. I was born in Corpus Christi. And when that happened, I just kind of fell in love. And from that day on, it was all horses all the time. That's all I thought about. So I talked about that was it. So you caught the bug as, as we all do. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, so when did you start riding? Um, so I would say that I started actually riding when I was seven. I kind of had a weird introduction. Like my parents weren't really sure how to do it. And I had a godfather that had a ranch and we had some property, um, a little bit North of where I lived about maybe 45 minutes. So what we do, my godfather takes my parents and we go to an auction and we buy just some random horse. His name was Jake, loved him. Um, and we just turned him out and I went to school all week. And then on the weekends we would drive up to the property and we would ride. And I just kind of learned how to like, just get on a horse and just, I guess through reading books and watching videos and all of those sorts of things. Um, yeah, they just kind of, it was more like a, more of a ranch style um, education at the beginning. Right. Um, and it just, you know, grew from there. It's so interesting. I actually hear from a lot of people that they started with, um, you know, their education with books and videos. I think it's wonderful how people find their way into the world by educating themselves that way. Yeah, for sure. And so when did you start getting more serious about it um, and maybe start competing? Um, You know, it never really let up. Like I I did as much as my parents would allow me to do. Like I said, I wasn't really in a a family that understood or was actually at that at that time. They weren't terribly supportive of um, of the horse thing. Um, And then I would I, I was a working student most of the time as a kid. Mm -hmm. So wherever I could, like I did a lot of like 4-H and FFA type of stuff. And then um, 
I was a working student for some combined training dressage people as a junior rider. But I would say real competing, probably not until I was in college when I went professional as a Western rider. Um, and that was I went to a small um, a small college in East Texas called Stephen F. Austin. And so through the school there, I got a lot of training experience and I got a lot of opportunity to start showing um, like Western pleasure horses and all around type horses. And that's when I would say the actual competition part started. And I honestly, I had no idea that you, you started in Western competing. That's really cool. Um, when did you decide to make the switch over to the hunter jumper world? Well, so it's, you know, I guess through the, through the Western, I, I call it Western, but through the quarter horse world mm -hmm. there, um, you know, they have their, their version of English riding hunter under saddle. And I was really into that. Um, and I'd already done the dressage and all that stuff. So I knew I liked, I preferred English riding over that anyway. So when I was right. doing the quarter horse things, I stuck to more of the hunter under saddle, the, their hunter over fences type of riding. And then um, as it came on, I was just like, you know what, this, I don't think this way of riding is really my style. And I hadn't ever really done the hunter jumper thing. So I moved back home um, and I called some friends and I was kind of looking for a way into the hunter jumper world. And through those phone calls, I ended up meeting my current business partner, who is Sean Brennan. Um, and that's when he's been supporting me ever since 2005. Um, and he is kind of who helped me get my break and start with horses that were competitive in the hunter jumper arena. And did you know, even from an early age that you wanted to be a professional and become a trainer and run your own business one day? I mean, yes, I knew that I wanted to do horses full time. Um, I, I didn't know how I didn't really have an education. I mean, I, I'd seen movies where people, that's what people did and they were horse trainers for a living, but that right. seems so far outside the realm of what was possible for me. Um, cause I didn't really understand that world or understand how people even ended up in that world. Um, and then as time went on, I was like, what else am I going to do? Like, I, I, I don't think I could sit in an office all day long. So I really was lucky to, to meet Sean and to have the opportunity to really have somebody that supported me and helped me get off the ground and kind of having my own business going in this way, you know? And along with Sean, are there other people throughout your career that you would consider, you know, uh, sources of support or mentors in your, in your career thus far? I mean, Sean's number one, like he's been there mm -hmm. from day one and he's done, I mean, I, I can't even imagine doing this business without him. Um, Mike and Mike McCormick and Tracy Finney, huge, huge supporters, um, and a wealth of knowledge that I, that I don't think anybody will ever understand to me. Um, recently Missy Clark and John Brennan have been there for me and done a lot for me. And, um, so yeah, I, I would say those are the people that stand out. I had a, I had a college professor that, that I'm still very, very close to. He was my professor and advisor. His name is Joe Gotti. Um, also very, very much, um, still a positive influence in my life, you know? That's amazing. And, and, and a lot of people don't really stay close with their college professors and advisors, but that's a wonderful thing that you have a close relationship with him still. 
Oh yeah, and he's he's a western rider. He he does he prefers cutting, um, mm-hmm. and like uh, the ranch horse and all that stuff. But I mean, he's such a horseman. I learned thing. I Amazing. still I still quote him day to day over things he taught me about being a horseman. So, I mean, okay, yes, I learned a lot about the hunter jumper industry from other people. But as far as being a horseman and and raising and training horses, I would he did a lot for me. That's incredible, and. For your business, Brookside Pine Farms, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, like you said, with the help of Sean, how did you get that off the ground? Um, So it's actually quite interesting. It started as a very different structure than it is now. When we first got this going, we had this idea that we were going to um, kind of do something different in in the way that just training misplaced horses you know like i i have a little bit of an eclectic background when it comes to riding i would say that more, more so than most people so we our business was kind of let's go to the dressage industry and find horses that aren't working that maybe really want to be hunters and let's go to the hunter jumper industry and find horses that aren't working and maybe want to be dressage horses so it was really just what i would call a horseman's program and just having horses that we thought needed a different direction and we were very successful doing that. And then um, as time went on, I got a new, a, a different customer that was looking to do a different thing. Her name was Maddie Chenoweth. Um, she now works for Martin Vanderhoven. Um, and she's now a professional. And she was a great customer for a very long time. I've, I, I love her and her family. They um, And she went, wanted to really do this at top sport. So she had some great hunters. Um, we bought and sold some fantastic horses. Um, and so that kind of just changed the, the, the pattern and the, the business model we had, um, obviously because we were traveling and showing more with them. Um, and then, yeah, then the business kind of went a different direction after that. And you have tons of amazing students. So how did you get kind of on the equitation track where your students just became so successful? Um, you know, I... I was always a little bit, I shouldn't say anti-equitation, but for me, it was always like not really um, the model that I, that I wanted to follow the business after. I kind of liked more like the hunters and the jumpers and, Mm -hmm. you know, more of a sport that was based in what I thought was horsemanship. Um, And then I got to know Don Stewart through selling a horse. Mm -hmm. And he kind of explained to me why expectation is so useful for these kids and how it's an overall program and just riding and track and pace and um and it re- and I saw how much it really helped the clients and their, their riding and their understanding and it made the equitation kids I think do such a good job riding hunters and jumpers later on in their career um so that's a little bit once you appreciate what it does for kids and you feel bad for the poor equitation horses. They for sure are the sacrificial lambs of this business. Um, <laughs> you know, like we, they, they jump more jumps and they go to more horse shows than any other horse. And, um, and you know what, but that as much as if you, we take great care and great pride in those horses because they have a, a very important job and those horses are what's creating and molding and, you know, the next big time riders in our industry and without yeah. them, I think these kids would be a little bit crippled, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're really, they educate so many people. And like you said, uh, so many kids coming to the equitation end up being, you know, they end up representing the United States and these equitation horses just give it their all to get them and to where they want to be and educate them. So totally agree with you there. 
I'd like to go into some more horse questions here. And even through, you know, your multi kind of discipline upbringing in sport horses, um, do you have any horse in your career that was super influential or important to you? Travis, um, without a doubt. Um, Travis is like is the most special horse I've ever owned. He was an equitation horse. Yes. He got me a top ribbon at medal finals. So in 2021, Eleanor was sixth on him at USET finals and third on him. She won the first round of medal finals and then ended up third. Um, but outside of the ribbons, it was by far the best character I've ever met. Um, horses, humans, I don't care. Um, he had a really, really special character. And um, I, I just feel I'm lucky that I got to have him and be with him and be a part of his life. Um, it was a really special horse for me. And as far as competing goes, um, you know, when you're showing yourself or actually even even at home when you're when you're training, um, what is your preferred discipline? Do you prefer the jumpers or the hunters? Oh, that's a very loaded question. You know, I was a hunter rider, <laughs> so so I I have a passion for the hunters. I love them. I love to watch hunters go well. Um, you know, without getting overly political, I'm a little sad with that industry right now. So I've um I've been slowly pulling my business away from that ring. And we have a lot of jumpers and I'm loving it. I, I you know, it's we really enjoy doing it. Um and to be honest. It doesn't really matter what sport you're doing. If you have a good horse that loves its job and that loves and that is talented and has an innate ability to do that sport, it's fun. You know, it's it's really just fun and it's easy. Um, but, yeah, I think right now the business is very much focused on jumpers and equitation. And as much as I love the jumpers, I have a fondness for the equitation horses and developing them and bringing them along. I, you know. Every day, getting on and schooling the egg horses and watching them get a little more even or a little more ambidextrous and teaching the kid and helping them stay on track to teach the kid, is it's it's a big part of what I love doing. Do you mind me asking what your opinion is on the hunter worlds at this moment, that you might be just backing away from it a little bit? Um, so really, to be honest, is is I think there's a lack of clarity and a lack of transparency. And, and we are not, I, I think what we've lost track of is that we fit because our industry is so small and so in such a little, a, a little tight click and, and niche of an industry, we forget that we are not the only sport that is subjectively judged. Um, gymnastics and figure skating are both subjective sports and, in fairly recent years, both sports had to do a complete overhaul of the judging and the um, the scoring and how they follow their rules and regulations. And I think our industry is so far behind doing that. Um, and if you watch, we, we often, everybody leaves the ring with the top professionals and the top riders um, of our industry very confused and very upset. And I don't think that is really something that should happen. You know, I don't I don't understand gymnastics. I don't understand figure skating. But when I watch those commentators go, they explain to me the the degree of difficulty and the scoring system. And then they play back what happened. And I go, ah, I totally get it. That makes sense to me. Right. Um, and our industry doesn't have that. And, and, and until they do, 
I, you know, it's just not really a sport I love. I think at this moment, you have a lot of different judges and a lot of different um, professionals that would explain to you what they saw in a very different right. way with a very different idea of scoring. And until we have a real basis of this is what that horse started out with a capability of, you know, when Simone Biles goes to a vault, we know exactly what her, what the highest max score she can produce. Right, right. And until we get some sort of scoring that follows that pattern, you know, this horse only jumps this well, it's only capable of this score, and it's swapped and rubbed, rubbed a jump, so it's this many points off. It's not, it wouldn't be that complicated, I don't think. And until we get people that are, that agree to do that and to just overhaul the system, I, I think that it's going to continue. You're going to see the numbers in the hunters getting less and less and the numbers in the jumpers growing. Yeah, actually, come to think of it, I, I feel like even as a kid, um, you know, this is when I was doing little things, but I feel like I remember being able to even go to a judge and say, you know, what was my mistake in that round? Uh, just for educational purposes, you know, explain to me what happened there that, you know, I had points taken off or, you know, that my round wasn't the best. And like you said, especially at, you know, the big, big shows, it could become very painstaking. Uh, and maybe a little mundane, but that is a very interesting point because it could be a very, um, like I said, educational um, and difference maker in the way that the hunters are going right now. For sure, you know, um, and I get it that it, it's 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 exhausting to it's exhausting to think about, it's exhausting to talk about. So actually doing it and acting on it, I think, would be even more exhausting. But yeah. when you think about the hours and the gym time that other athletes put in. Um, mm -hmm. It's not different than the hours and the gym time. The only difference is we put in a lot more finances. <laughs> um, so I yeah. think that it, it's probably time that when you leave, we, we, I shouldn't have to go to the steward and request and hope that the judge is willing to talk to me. I yeah. think that that card should, I should be able to go online and pull up my card and say, oh, that's what they didn't like. That's what they saw. That was the deduction. Thanks. I appreciate it. And go about my day. I think that's an excellent idea. Some kind of like a like an electronic uh, log or a way to go and look at it. That's that's an excellent idea. Thank you for sharing your opinion with me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no worries, no worries. So actually, and then speaking of some winning and losing and showing, um, you know, this sport is super unpredictable and things don't always go the way that we plan. So when you or one of your students maybe has a bad day or you're not winning as often as you might like, how do you deal with something like that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell you that it is, it's a process I'm learning. I'm, I'm still getting older and I'm still learning and trying to improve myself as time goes on. So I'm, to be honest, a bad loser, um, which, okay, fair. I've learned to accept that as being one of my weaknesses. Um, so I, I think the heart, the, the most important thing to remember is everybody wins when they should lose and everybody loses when they should win when you're talking about a subjective sport. <laughs> um, and so sometimes it goes your way and sometimes it doesn't. And some days it just doesn't go your way and that you have to get up and fight and hope that the next time it does go your way. Um, that being that being put aside, as, as far as performance goes, um, nobody, in, the horses included, I don't think wake up and attempts to lose every day yeah. Yeah. those kids 
are dreaming that they win and they're fighting to win. And for whatever reason, it doesn't come together. It's not easy, I don't think, to to deal with, to get into a little bit of a kid's psyche and try to find out what makes them anxious or what makes them make a mistake or why they're making those choices. Um, and and it's, it, it's something that people really kind of overlook is that, um, is that it, it's a mental game. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of mental toughness required in this sport. And uh, I, th- I think there's a lot of, a lot to that. So as far as performance goes, we just try to understand why, why that mistake happened. Like what can we do tomorrow or next mm-hmm. week or next month? to improve upon that mistake so that the mistake doesn't happen. Um, and then, you know, it's an everyday training process. I think it's just growth, um, you know. And then when things do go your way for either yourself or your students in the ring, uh, can you talk about some of your most favorable or successful um, wins in your career or in your student's career with you as a trainer? Um, you know, I, Kalu stands out as being um, a big deal for me. I that was one of the the horses that I I think I was really successful with that maybe a lot of people would not have been as successful with. So him being um, reserve grand at Devon and grand at Junior Hunter Finals, like he he had a huge career. So that horse stands out for me as um, as having a lot of success. Um, 2021, uh, well, I say that 2019, maybe, um, Eleanor winning when Eleanor Rudnicki won the Taylor Harris and the NHS, the, the smaller finals. Mm-hmm. That was, um, that was very fun because that was a goal we set out to do. You know, we said that out loud, you know, our goal is to win those three foot three, three finals, um, next year in 2018. And we trained for it. We built up to it. And that was a, a time when something you, that you put out there that's kind of a big deal and not easy to do, um, came to fruition. And that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then recently, um, Sophia, Katie winning the, um, winning pre States and the junior jumper cha- championship at Harrisburg. That mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. That was cool. <laughs> and, um, what about when your students are showing or even when you yourself when you're competing, do you ever get nervous and how do you handle those nerves? Ooh, I was a basket case when I showed, I didn't, I, 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 I don't, <laughs> I, I don't compete anymore for a reason. Um, I anxiety was like completely a factor in my, um, in my horse showing career. And I didn't, you know, for me, it made horse showing unpleasant. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I ran track as a kid. I had the same anxiety. I showed horses. It's not, it wasn't horses. It wasn't judging. Um, because when I ran track, it was the same sort of, um, anxiety feeling just to just a sport in general. So probably, you know, big sport, just not for me. I, you know, some people like, I, I think I realize that I prefer coaching. I prefer teaching over mm-hmm. big sport because of the anxiety. Um, but I think that gives me a great outlook when some of the kids have that anxiety. You know, I think a lot of times I have a couple of kids that are like, I'm not nervous. I'm like, okay. Really? <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 and I'm like, you know what, if you, if you aren't nervous and you don't have a little anxiety, then you clearly don't want it bad enough. So it's not, I don't think anxiety is a bad thing. 
Um, and I wish I had somebody that kind of coached me through it a little bit differently because I think maybe it would have ended up as a young kid. I think maybe it would have been different for me. Um, but it is, it's for sure something you have to learn to cope with and have to learn to function with. Do you have any kind of a routine or superstitions with your kids before a big competition? Um, I am not a big superstitious guy. Um, if I were to say anything is that when it comes down to it, I like my kids to be able to be rested. So I want the kids to know that we've, that everything's been handled, that they're prepared, that they're rehearsed, um, and that, um, the morning of the competition or the day of the competition, I don't want them scrambling around trying to do last minute details. You know, everything should be done. Everything should be thought about. Let us handle the last minute details. Let us get the horses ready into the ring and you just worry about performance. Yeah, I've heard that um, from quite a few different trainers and riders that, you know, having the things that you can control in place before you go into the show ring is such a big thing because as long as you can control the controllables, you know, you'll handle anything that, you know, might not be expected when it's thrown your way. But as For long sure. as you have what you can control, um, you know, that's very comforting in the face of a big moment. Um, so I'd like to get into your training here a little bit. So when you're training your students, do you, would you say you have a training philosophy? Um, well, kind of, <laughs> kind of, I, I would say that, um, so as far as training horses, Yes. And as far as I, I think you train horses and kids very differently, um, obviously, the, um, mm -hmm. with the, the with the students, the philosophy is very much based on knowing where they are and accuracy. I feel like if you're worried about where you are, how can you think about anything else? So we focus a lot on with um, pole work and the horses and the kids kind of being comfortable with the canner and knowing what canner they have and knowing where they are so that it's, it becomes second nature to them. So when they are on course and there's, there's questions being asked or their style, you know, there's a moment in the course where it's a little bit simple and they need to worry about their style or their position that, you know, the other things, the canner, the placement, the jumps, aren't really a factor because they kind of are comfortable with where they are. Right. Right. And kind of in that same realm, did you, or sorry, could you describe maybe a teaching style? Would you find yourself a little more um, involved or do you like to back off a little bit and let the students handle things? Um, I like to give information when the kids are, are standing. I, I like to talk and lecture um, like kind of the kids in a, like in a lecture kind of format and then say, okay, now go. And then when they're going and when they're executing, you, I don't say much, right. They, I don't really feel like, um, they need to hear me when they're trying to execute what I've already given them to do. You know, like it's, right. it's their time to think it's their time to apply and execute and become a thinking writer. Um, and I think without that ability, how are they ever going to show successfully? Right. It's great. You need to, you know, give them the opportunity to make those decisions on their own. They've given them the tools and now they need to go go into the ring and, and put those tools to the test um, on their own. Wonderful. Correct. It's all about all about application. Mm -hmm. 
And another question about when you're teaching your students, do you ever find that there's one thing that um, maybe some more students than not need to work on? Um, you know, I don't know that there's one thing. Um, my biggest, what if you would call it a pet peeve, is the same mistake happening over and over. You know, I just don't make the same mistake. I don't care what the mistake is. You know, when I was a student, I, I would I would fancy myself a very good student. If you tell me I'm going too slow, the next time you're going to say, "Whoa, easy there." Now that's you, you know you're, you're going way too fast. Right. Um, and so I want I just want to see change. I think people need to get very comfortable with change. And when you're training at home with your students, you mentioned you know pole work before. Um, do you have a favorite exercise that you think is really important in your home ring um, when you're working with your students? Um, you know, no, not so much. Um, well, yes, I guess. But to be honest, it's just a single pull. Um, you know, we talk a lot about how to get to a single pull. So we do a lot of coursework and, say, you know, we do all the things that you have to do. But when it comes down to it, I want the kids knowing where the canner is, and I want them to be able to talk to me about how they found and why they went over that one pole the way they did, what they were thinking, what they were doing. And I think if they have that, if they, if they can have that sort of focus, then the rest of it is just piecing it together. Pole, pole work is, can be really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Very much you think, so. You think it's just a pole on the ground, but I sometimes, you know, even in my own writing, I find it's more difficult to find a distance to a pole than it ever is to, <laughs> to find a distance to an actual jump. <laughs> well, for sure. I think there's a, I think because the horses all, all often they're so talented, you know, they're not jumping a pole. Yeah. So your, your, um, your degree of room for error is less. And I think you can feel, um, those, that degree of error a little bit more you know like if if you're too close to the pole and the horse steps on it behind or if you're too far for the pole so the horse really you really feel the stretch whereas when you, you have a jump i feel like the horses can kind of cover that up with scope a lot of times right um, yeah. when it's not as accurate as you would like it to be and i want to get into a question here um that quite a few people that i speak with have a little bit of a difficult time answering this one but what would you say is the hardest part of the sport for you? And this could be anything from emotionally to financially to um, mentally. So what would you say uh, is the biggest struggle for you? Mm, the biggest struggle might be, oof, I don't know. Oh, that's, a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> you are right with the hard to answer that one. Um <laughs> I mean, I, I think that my biggest struggle is balancing um, what's good for the horses versus what's good for the kids. You know, the kids, I think all, all the time they get big ambitions uh, and they want to go to this show and they want to go to that show and they want to have this lesson. And I'm like, guys, you know, within, in 2023, there are so many horse shows and there are so many championships and there are so many um, titles that these kids want to accomplish and want to win. And it's just not, you can't do it all. The horses can't do it all. So balancing, yeah. I think somebody's financial ability to have the right number or enough horses 
um, and the the horse welfare and the horses not doing too many classes and not doing too many horse shows and not doing too many lessons um, and just having time to be horses and the kids having time to process. You know, I would even say in the past two years, you know, I, I wish I was really at home more to just give more lessons, more instruction, talk more about um, horse IQ um, and and just being horsemen about everyday life and training that we sometimes lose track of because of the amount, the amount of weeks that we show in day in and day out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it can be difficult to remind yourself um, when you're in the midst of all that craziness of showing, you know, what the important things are, you know, in the sport to us. And I'd like to get into some diversity and inclusion questions here, if you don't mind. Um, I think back in 2020, if I remember correctly, you were a wonderful voice for Practical Horsemen. We did an article um, about diversity in the sport. Um, so just a couple questions here. In your career as a horseman, do you find that being a person of color has affected your business as a professional? And do you think that that has changed over time? Um, you know, I'm pretty naive as far as I, like I, I was I was raised pretty sheltered. So um, I don't ever assume that something is or is not happening because of my color. So I, I, I think that's a lot to carry around and to think about every day. So to be honest, I, I'm probably less than aware if that if it were the case. Um, but I'm sure I'm, I'm 100 percent sure that that me being a person of color, everything that we do, you know, the cu customers are gra gravitate to, um, to professionals for one reason or another, whether it be, um, this trainer focuses more on the athleticism versus another trainer versus, um, focusing more on the recreational fun. So to think that your personality and maybe your skin color or your gender doesn't play a fact, a factor on, um, people's decisions, I think, would be pretty short-sighted and, and naive. So I'm 100% sure that it does. Ha whether it's positive or negative, uh, I I couldn't really I couldn't really speak to that. Um, I, I can just tell you that I have a nice business and I live a great life. So um, so I'm going to lean towards the fact that it's had a positive influence on my career. That's wonderful to hear. And you know, statistically this is a very, very white sport. And throughout your career, have you noticed that changing over time? Like, have you seen more people of color um, being given, you know, more opportunity in the sport? Um, you know, I don't know, to be honest, that I've seen much change. And as far as opportunity, um, I, I don't know that uh, it, it's it's very difficult because I feel like when you talk mm -hmm. about people of color, that the, it's a lot of it has to do with location. When you talk about opportunity, right. um, and a lot of it is cultural background. Like I don't think that my limited exposure to opportunities as a junior rider had as much to do with my color as it was the fact that my parents were such in such cultural shock to this business that right. you know like that they were just like i don't even know where to go or start or to even be supportive could you make it a living could you could you provide for yourself doing something like this and mm -hmm. um and they would have of course said no so um i think it's more i would i lean heavier towards 
um, the the limitations being put on people's culture, not really willing to step out and look for the help and find that support. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's kind of the direction I would go with that. Do you think that there's a correct way to help people learn these things about the sport so that they can have more opportunity? Uh, you know, we've talked about that um, a lot in the past and I, you know, I, I think that it's all out there. I think with, when I was a kid, you know, I, I don't want to sound this old, but it's not like you just hopped on a computer and did a Google search like you can now. Right. right? Yeah. So I think that if, you know, kids have enough access, people have enough access, hop online, Google, find somebody. If somebody tells you no, when you really want to do it, you'll find somebody that'll tell you yes. Um, so I think there's tons of opportunity out there if people are really willing to find it. Um, I, I don't think I've ever been turned away because of my culture or my, or, or, you know, my skin color or anything like that. Um, I think I've had people that have been so supportive and like, you know, almost like, Hey, it's kind of cool. I'm doing something different. Um, right. So yeah, I don't, I, I, I think you just have to want it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have any words of wisdom for, you know, think about when you were a boy and you were just getting into this sport for any people who are, you know, up and coming riders of, of color or not any words of wisdom that you could give them. Um, so if, if it's, if it's, if I'm speaking generally to like just everybody, then the, my words of wisdom are don't forget why you do it. You know, I, you know, mm-hmm. and I assume that everybody starts doing this because they love horses. Um, and I think a lot of people lose track of that in this business. And it's sad to see, um, when it's people of color, um, I would say the biggest advice I can give you is don't look for problems. Don't, don't, um, when I say don't look for problems, that's maybe the wrong way to say that. Um, more like, I, I think that, like I told you, we talked about on it earlier as I was so naive to all of those things. Don't overthink it. If somebody isn't doesn't want to support you and you think it's because of your skin color or your or your cultural background, then t- t- just think it's that it's one person. It's not an industry of people. Um, and I think you're gonna find um, no matter what industry you go in, you're gonna find um, a racist or you're gonna find somebody that's um, prejudiced for some reason or another. And you just I think you just have to look and assume that that's one individual in a a very large industry and you just keep trucking. Right. Right. You can't dwell on people who are negative towards you. (laughs) And I find, you know, that can be in in anyone's case, you know, I feel like there's, you know, some, if someone's trying to bat you down, like you said, it's such a big pool of people. You kind of just have to move past those people who don't have your best interests in heart. And there are plenty of people that will be in your corner. Uh, totally. And, you know, I will tell you the interesting mm-hmm. thing about me in this business is I will tell you that if I've the what little racism I've experienced or prejudice I've experienced has come from immigrants in our industry. Interesting. So um, just I mean, I, I thought about that the other day and I was like, you know, that's it, it's it's always been immigrants that are here on visas or, you know, that aren't like necessarily born and raised Americans. So I thought that was a pretty interesting fact that I kind of thought of myself the other day. 
have you thought of a reason that 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 might be? I have no idea because yeah. <laughs> luckily I think I was raised, I'm American raised. Yeah. So, um, so, but I mean, I can't really put a finger to it, but um, usually it is, it is for sure heavily based with immigrants. When I, when I feel like I, I'm like, wow, I feel like that was a little racist. I feel like that was a little bit mm. negative and it's, it's immigrants. And do you think that there's a way in, in our sport to address those things happening, you know, when something like that happens a way to, I don't know if reported is, is the right word, but just, you know, a correct way to address it and stop these things from happening. Um, my, I like to address it by winning. I think mm. there's nothing <laughs> I like more. There's totally. nothing I like more than proving somebody wrong by winning. Um, yeah. it is my favorite thing to do. Um, and so I just get more focused. I try harder. I try to win another class. Um, I try to sell another horse i try to do something that says watch i'll be i'll be more successful that's a great way to handle it (laughs) can't say much about that can they (laughs) (laughs) you know proof is in the pudding yeah definitely just a couple wrap-up questions here um so what's next for you i know you mentioned washington's what's next for you and your students um so next week we go to washington um a little bit licking our wounds from harrisburg we you know we had a we had a wonderful go in the jumpers but you know like i talked to you about with the judging that you know can't really agree with it but whatever we're going to go forward um and we're going to hope that we have more success um at washington next week you know i've got three good riders um that i think that are going with me next week that i think could all put in very nice rounds and have a chance um after that the national horse show um ty simpson works for me now he's a he's huge huge addition to my business so next week while i'm at washington he'll be here in lexington um doing the three three equitation weekend um with a very good customer uh that has a a couple of that has a very nice horse so we will kind of divide and conquer next week uh and then we'll come back together and try to end out the year at McClay Finals, the National Horse Show. Awesome. Good luck to you and your students. The big you, time, big time of year. Oh yeah. It's nonstop every day. Oh yeah. And a couple just fun little questions here. Um, if you could go back in time and tell your younger self anything or give him a piece of advice, what would you tell him? Breathe, slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pay attention to what's happening and pay attention and, and, and think more about tomorrow and not always focusing on, um, what, like what's going wrong today, you know, just it's calm down. It's all fine. And could you share something about yourself that people might not know? Just a little tidbit that you could tell us. Um, I love the number four. Oh, I like to do okay. everything in fours. I buy everything in fours. I walk in four steps at a time. <laughs> I do everything in fours. <laughs> See, and you said you weren't superstitious. <laughs> Is that a superstition? <laughs> it might be. You might consider that one. <laughs> well, that's all I have for you today. Um, do you have anything else to add? Anything um, you could plug, you know, your business or anything like that? Um, no, I just, if I, if I were going to add, I would say that 
um, I think everybody is starting to see, like, you know, we talked about the East Coast and and every it's very important to feel like you can be successful on the East Coast. But mm-hmm. I want to give a, a shout out to Texas. I feel like the Texans have really been stepping up the past few years with Eleanor Rudnicki and Tessa Downey and Luke Jensen and Carly McCutcheon. Um, and so I would like to see more. Um, I would like to see the Texas horse shows supporting some of these bigger classes and some of these bigger horse shows. Mm-hmm. And I would like to see the business and the the industry and the culture in Texas lean a little more equitation based. I think it's good for the customers and I think it's great for business. Awesome. Yeah, I actually I have a friend that just moved to Oklahoma and he is planning on doing a bunch of shows in Texas. So I think that area of the country is really growing. It's awesome. Yeah, it's so cool. We have we have a lot of great customers and a lot of great riders have come out of Texas. Um, mm-hmm. And I just and I think when they're young, Texas is so far away from everything, and the the industry within itself in Texas isn't really equitation championship final based. You know, yeah. when you go to California, it's very far away, but they always have some sort of final or some sort of something leading to something else. Um, and we don't really talk about that or do that in Texas. Um, and I think that makes it a big jump when those kids do realize, oh, there's something else out there. There's a huge jump from um, the the what is the everyday horse show in Texas to the finals and the championships on the East Coast and moving forward. So I would like to see our industry, our, our Texas industry move more that direction, you know? Yeah, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me this morning. And I appreciate your candor and your honesty throughout our conversation. It was wonderful. Oh, awesome. I had a great time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Barry Porter. And a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Purina. Learn more at PurinaMills.com. You can subscribe to the Practical Horseman podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Also, tune into our mini-sode series, The Fod Pod, where you'll hear audio lessons from our favorite Practical Horseman On Demand clips. At Practical Horseman On Demand, you can enjoy hundreds of how-to videos and get insider access to exclusive interviews and lectures slow motion demonstrations, and step-by-step tutorials taught by top-level pros in the hunter, jumper, equitation, and eventing disciplines. When you tune into the FOD pod, listen closely for a promo code for 15% off your Practical Horseman on-demand subscription. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. I'm Julia Boutenhouse, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman podcast.